Today's episode is sponsored by Podacy. Podacy is an online community where you can discover and discuss top podcast recommendations with fellow listeners like yourself. This means that you can spend less time searching for a podcast that fits your interests and more time listening to new binge-worthy podcasts. Whether you enjoy true crime, mysteries, or storytelling, you'll find great podcasts recommended by Podacy's community of podcast superfans. Receive podcast recommendations tailored to your interests and tastes and based off the people you follow, so you never miss a great podcast again. Every Sunday, you get a newsletter roundup of the best podcast recommendations, playlists, and more in your inbox. Discover true crime and trending podcasts you wouldn't find otherwise access the top charts to view the top episodes being listened to across the app and connect with fellow podcast fans to discuss podcasts you love like ours podacy has been described by listeners as revitalizing the podcast world and a delightful app share your favorite podcast with podcast playlists similar to music playlists but for podcasts Podacy is available on any browser at podacy.fm, or you can unlock more features by downloading the iOS or Android app. Recommend your favorite episodes of our podcast on Podacy so more podcast fans can learn about it. Podacy is Odyssey spelled with a P, P-O-D-Y-S-S-E-Y. Follow us on Podacy to connect with us. Visit podacy.fm or the link in the show notes to check it out. The Oracle Network. Hello and welcome to Yield Crime, where we discuss the funny, strange, and obscure crimes of yesteryear. I'm your host, Lindsay Valenti, and with me is my sister and co-host, Maddie Stengel. Hello. Hi. How's it going? So you've got your coffee? Yeah, I haven't had enough coffee yet. My voice is kind of screechy. Screechy. So sorry about that. It'll get better, I promise. So today's episode is going to be a long one. All right. And we haven't gone... I don't think we've ever covered this part of American history yet before. So this will be a new one for us. Episode 68. Woohoo! So, (laughs) we are going to be talking about the Great Locomotive Chase, also known as Andrew's Raid. Hmm. Okay. I'm assuming, based off that response, you've never heard of this. Never heard of it. Never, not once. I was going to be like, oh, like a Billy the Kid thing. And then you said Andrew. And I was like, nope. (laughs) Definitely don't know an outlaw named Andrew. Who's Andrew? Normally, outlaws aren't named Andrew. (laughs) It's a very proper name for an outlaw. (laughs) Right. All right, let's dive into it. So information was pulled from the following sources. A 2021 Historic Oakland Foundation article by Andrew Bramlett. A 2019 Thought Co. article by Kennedy Hickman. A 1977 American Heritage article by Stephen W. Sears. A 1962 The Railway and Locomotive Historical Society Bulletin article by Wilbur G. Kurtz Sr., the American Rails website, National Medal of Honor Museum, The Great Locomotive Chase, a history of the Andrews Railroad Raid into Georgia in 1862. That is a book, a 488-page book. That is a book. (laughs) (laughs) Be impressed. <laughs> I did not read all of it, but I 
am intrigued by it. So I may read it later on. I did download the PDF to put it on my Kindle. So nice. Because I read like the first five pages and then I was like, I ain't got time for this. So it happens. And last but never least, Wikipedia. Oh, tried and true. The tried and true. And links to all of these articles will be included in the show notes. The April 15th, 1862 edition of the Southern Confederacy newspaper in Atlanta, Georgia, called the event we'll be discussing today, quote, the most thrilling railroad adventure that has ever occurred on the American continent, end quote. Oh, no. The Confederacy newspaper uh-huh. said that? Uh-huh. You have an idea where we're going now? Yeah. Andrew is seeming less Christian. <laughs> yep. Oh, no. The American Civil War was about a year old at this point, and the event in question, which has also been called the Andrews Raid, as I mentioned, was a mission led by Union soldiers. The idea was thought up on Sunday, April 6, 1862, when the men of Company H, the 33rd Ohio Infantry, were resting near the campfire in Shelbyville, Tennessee. Company Commander Lieutenant A.L. Waddell, that's the name, Wow, that is the name. (laughs) Waddle from Tennessee. Announced to the gathered men that he needed a volunteer for a secret and important mission behind enemy lines. Enter Corporal Daniel Alien Dorsey. That's an unfortunate middle name. That is an unfortunate middle name. And I was like, maybe it's Alan, and it was misspelled. No, no. Everywhere I looked, it was listed as Alien. So Hmm. that's not a miss. A misspelling on my part. I double-checked. Crazy. A 23-year-old former school teacher from Fairfield County, Ohio. He volunteered, and after the lieutenant took his leave, the rest of the men started catcalling Dorsey, essentially calling him a dead man. So that's fun. That's super fun. Great. Dead man walking Dorsey. <laughs> See you at the pearly gates, alien. <laughs> <laughs> That was the wrong time to take a drink of coffee. Dark. (laughs) Throughout the rest of the night and part of the next day, 22 additional volunteers were rounded up from the 33rd Ohio Regiment, as well as the 2nd and 21st Ohio Regiments. The bulk of the men had taken part in the battle at Bull Run the previous July, or recently fought in Kentucky, so they were eager for a reprieve from battle. I bet. The battle at Bull Run was nothing to shake a stick at. Yeah, it was bad. Yeah, it was pretty bad. Of the group, three of the men were civilians, Wilson Brown, Martin Hawkins, and William Knight. The men had been chosen specifically for their knowledge of railroads as railroaders by trade. Oh, okay. Yep, there's a reason. Because <laughs> at first I was just like, hey, what are you guys up to? Can I join? <laughs> Don't want to join the war, but I'll join this. This sounds cool. Yeah, they just like wander into the camp. Hey, guys. Hey, guys. I wanted to have your really terrible coffee and poisoned beef jerky. How's it going? (laughs) I just thought I'd drop on by and see what's going on at the the camp. Yeah. As a fellow Unionite. Right. And the mission in question? This Barry Mary Band. I cannot talk. This very bland of blues. <laughs> this merry band of men was going to capture and operate a Confederate train. Brigadier General Ormsby McKnight Mitchell, 
who led the three Ohio regiments as part of the Army's Ohio 3rd Division, didn't shy away from ideas that seemed a bit bold and unorthodox. Mm -hmm. At 51, Mitchell had already served time in the Army, resigning in the 1830s before re-enlisting after the events at Fort Sumter. Yeah, that makes sense. Which were also bad. All of it was bad. All of it was (laughs) bad. There's not one portion of the Civil War that was like, you know... That was a good battle. considered not bad. That was a good one. Good job, guys. (laughs) Slow clap. I'll bet. The man whom the raid is named after was a civilian named James J. Andrews. Not much is really known about him other than he was born in Hancock County in in what is now West Virginia in 1829 before suddenly appearing in Flemingsburg, Kentucky in 1859 to work as a house painter, teacher at a singing school, and a hotel clerk. So he had a variety of jobs. That's kind of hilarious how he was like, I am born and now I am everything. (laughs) (laughs) And now I am here (laughs) and I have the voice of an angel. (laughs) I am here to save everything. And paint your house. And sing while I do it. (sighs) Teach your kids. Whistle while you work. Timmy is flat. (laughs) At that time, Kentucky was a divided state. And in the first winter of the Civil War in 1861 to 1862, Andrews would smuggle medicine to the Confederates and return with intelligence that he would then pass on to the Union Command Station in Kentucky. Ooh, sneaky. Mm -hmm. Here's a cell for your your leg stump. Yeah. How's the war going? Hey, fam. How's it going? That's surprising. I mean, well, not really, because I feel like during the Civil War, everyone was amped and also very much tired of it. So I yeah. feel like everyone would spill secrets <laughs> from both sides. Well, this is only yeah. a year in. I mean, yeah. this lasted They're a like, while. This sucks, right? Yeah. <laughs> They're like, yeah, you know what really does? You know what happened to me yesterday? <laughs> I lost a leg. It was sawed <laughs> off and I had no anesthesia. Yep. And if it was in Virginia, it could be in one of those houses where like, limbs would just be thrown out of the window oh, God, of yeah. the second floor. Yeah. Happened all the time. All the time. They would just come into your house and be like, hey, this house looks nice because it's brick and we can defend it <laughs> and we can defend it. We're going to live here for a while. Oh, and we're also going to use your upstairs as um, a makeshift surgical table, surgical table. So let us use that dining room table that you used to eat at. And we're just going to start throwing limbs out the window and see what happens. That's crazy. I mean, you do what you got to do. Yeah. Yeah. When I heard that for the first time, I was really shocked. You know, because you're like, limbs just being thrown out of windows? Are you serious? But I mean, it makes sense. You got to do what you got to do. Yeah. Time. but (laughs) So speaking of limbs, I I was re-listening to our episode about body snatching. Mm-hmm. And I had forgotten about the part where there was this medical student who was doing a dissection and there were a bunch of kids playing outside and they happened to like look up at him and he took a severed arm and like waved at them with it. Oh my God. <laughs> and I had forgotten about that and I was like, Jesus Christ. <laughs> Could you imagine seeing that and being like, hey, dad, guess yep. what I just saw? Yep. Well, 
when I used to work in an OR, I saw a foot getting removed. And gra- yeah, granted, it was like in the proper setting <laughs> and like everything was safe and there wasn't like anything too graphic because, you know, they had taken care of it. But it, it felt like a really horrifying magic trick because I was just walking. I was walking past that OR from delivering meds to a heart surgery. And I just saw this guy like take the foot away. <laughs> I was like, whoop. <laughs> and I to, like, run back to the pharmacy because that is not my cup of tea. Yeah, not something you see every day. I'll never forget that. Oh, like, God. <laughs> it was like he was taking his shoe off, only he took everything else with it. Jesus. It was crazy. All right. Uh, All right. So circling back. So circling <laughs> back, it was Andrews who developed the plot to sabotage the Confederate railroad network, which is what gained him an audience with Commander Mitchell. Mm. And actually, this wasn't his first attempt at, quote unquote, derailing the Confederacy. <laughs> That's so funny. Like, hey, guys, we should steal this train. Shut up, Andrews. <laughs> Because no, we should really steal a train. Yeah, okay. Yeah, okay, we'll get right on that. During the Fort Donelson campaign, Andrews worked under the employ of Brigadier General Don Carlos Buell of the Ohio Army, whose forces were at that time moving into Nashville. After the Shiloh campaign, Andrews approached Buell with a plot to destroy the Memphis and Charleston Railroad, or at least the portion that ran between Chattanooga and Corinth. Buell agreed and instructed Andrews to move to Atlanta to execute the plan. In March 1862, Andrews set out with six to eight men to rendezvous with an engineer who would help them pilot the locomotive. Once it was apparent that the engineer had gotten cold feet and wasn't coming, the party headed back to Tennessee. That sucks. Yeah. Because then you're like... Nobody else knows how to do this? Well, it's not like... It's not like they it just. Buell. <laughs> Buell. <laughs> it's actually spelled like Bueller without the ER. So that works. <laughs> <laughs> At that time, the southern United States wasn't as developed with railroads as the north and had about half the lines and mileage that the Union controlled. In fact, the south only had control over one main line that ran east and west to Atlanta which was the second most important munitions center for the Confederates after the center in Richmond, Virginia. That makes sense. This track met in Chattanooga, Tennessee, which is around 70 miles or 113 kilometers from where General Mitchell's encampment was located. Andrews and Mitchell met with the goal of removing the Chattanooga connection from the Confederates' control in an effort to cripple their supplies. At the time that the Andrews raid was being concocted, the North was already closing in on many areas of the South. Kentucky was currently under the authority of the Union, even though it was kind of divided, and more Union soldiers were advancing south along the Mississippi River. Grant was leading another battalion south along the Tennessee River, not to mention a huge naval force was waiting at the mouth of the Mississippi near New Orleans. If Chattanooga fell, it would be a huge blow to the Confederates. Yeah, that makes sense. And it also, I mean, you can be occupied by one group and still have a good number of people that are not in agreement. Yep. <laughs> so. Yeah, obviously it was the southern half of Kentucky that was like, damn you Yankees. Yeah. 
Andrews had been spying on the Western and Atlantic Railroad, which wound its way north from Atlanta to the mountainous terrain of Georgia and onward to Chattanooga. The line, which was owned and run by the state of Georgia, was one of the best railroads in the South. Chattanooga connected the line to Lynchburg, Virginia, and with the Memphis and Charleston line out of Memphis, Tennessee. So the line that he was originally going to try and cripple. Okay. Monday, April 7th, 1862, Andrews met with the 23 volunteers to explain the plan to them. The eldest of the group was 32, the youngest was 18, and about the average age was 24. So these are fairly young men. Yeah. I feel like that was the majority of the Civil War soldiers in the very beginning. Yeah. It was a lot of young, able-bodied men. Yeah. And then as it gone on, it was kind of like... Younger. Yeah. It was more Anyone like... who can help, helps. Yeah. A civilian named William Campbell was among their ranks, having replaced a soldier from the 2nd Ohio Regiment after he backed out. Everyone in the group was dressed in civilian attire and armed with pistols. Like spies. Like spies. I know. This is... If you think this is spy-like, wait until we get into it. It's bananas. <laughs> Andrews himself had an imposing figure. At 35, he was described by Corporal Dorsey as, quote, a large, well-proportioned gentleman with a long, black, silken beard, black hair, and Roman features, end quote. I'm sorry, but I love that one man called another man well-proportioned. I know. And it with a silken beard. Yeah. If you see a picture of this guy, he looks like Abraham Lincoln without all the facial moles before he got really gaunt. Okay, so he was like... Like that's what Americans looked like. So if you picture like the big, long, like floofy beard, that's kind of what he looked Mm -hmm. like. Andrews explained that the group would divide into smaller parties before making their way southeast through enemy lines on foot or by whatever other means necessary before meeting in Chattanooga the next Thursday afternoon. After meeting up again, they would take the W&A's evening train to Marietta, Georgia, where they would arrive by midnight on April 10th. So they're going as far south as possible to basically the end of the line for this train. Are they taking the midnight train to Georgia? They are, literally. Espas. The midnight train to Georgia. Don't sing anymore or we'll get sued. Hey, that was only, I think it's 15 seconds or longer. Yeah. So we're good. So... Obviously, the W and A's line is that like super long name that I said earlier. I don't want to keep saying it every time, so I'm just going to call it W and A's. <laughs> okay. If at any point they were interrogated, they were to say they were Union-hating Kentuckians looking to enlist in the Confederate Army. The next morning, on Friday, they would board the first northbound train and commandeer it on behalf of the Union. Their main objective was to burn as many bridges behind them as possible to cripple the W&A line as they took the stolen train through Chattanooga before heading west on the Memphis and Charleston line to meet up with General Mitchell's battalion. Okay. I mean, that makes sense, but like, I feel like it's going to be really hard to burn that many bridges. (laughs) Yeah. Yeah. And not just in an emotional way. (laughs) We're not friends anymore. I'm burning this bridge. While Andrews and his group of raiders were accomplishing this, General Mitchell and his forces would be pushing south into Huntsville, Alabama, across the Tennessee border. 
Once Chattanooga was cut off from any form of reinforcement, Mitchell would capture the town on behalf of the Union. Andrews himself said it best, quote, Boys, we're going into danger, but for results that can be tremendous, end quote. It's true. If they can pull it off, it'd be phenomenal. Pretty big and I feel coup. really bad that I don't already know the story. <laughs> yeah. The group ran into trouble almost from the start. Heavy rain moved in, turning the dirt roads into nothing but mud and potholes, which killed their hopes of hiring wagons from farmers to speed up their journey. Yeah. The band of raiders traveled in groups of three or four and slipped into woodsheds or barns to rest during the unending rain, while others paid to stay at homesteads. Southern rebels believed their cover story about defecting and welcomed them with open arms. Many of the men spoke as little as possible, trying to pass themselves off as uneducated and simple men who were barely smart enough to know to come inside from the rain. Oh, no. That's so... (laughs) I mean, that's a tactic for sure. Yeah. Well, because, I mean, you don't want to talk a lot when you're in enemy lines and accidentally slip up and say something where they're like, hey, now... Seven of the 23 men crossed the Tennessee River on a ferry west of Chattanooga and threw caution to the wind when they boarded a Confederate troop train on its way into town, which is ballsy. Yeah, that's really ballsy. That's okay. The remaining men slowly made their way along the north bank of the river. As you can imagine, the weather slowed down the schedule quite a bit, and Andrews had to delay the plan by a full day. He made the assumption that General Mitchell's march would be having similar issues. Upon arriving at Chattanooga on Friday, April 11th, they were surprised to find the town in complete chaos. General Mitchell had been on time and seized Huntsville, putting Andrews and his men a day behind schedule. Oh, no. Yeah, there was no texting at that time. Yeah. Couldn't really warn each other. (laughs) It's not like you could just go to a telegraph station and be like, hey, bro, where are you at? Yep. Andrews was unsure how this lapse would affect the greater mission, but his immediate concern was whether or not the W and A line was running on its normal schedule. As he and the rest of his men entered the station to wait for the southbound evening train, he found that two of his men hadn't made it. Sam Llewellyn and James Smith ran into trouble outside of Jasper and enlisted in a rebel light artillery unit to avoid suspicion, with the goal of running back to Union-safe territory at the first chance they got. So now he's down to 21 men. Yeah, that would be really scary, though, if you were, like, so close to being done, and then you're like, uh, yeah, we'll join join you guys, that sounds fun, bang, bang, shoot, shoot, you know. Andrews and his remaining raiders boarded the train without incident, and the men took note of the main bridges that took the W and A across the Chickamauga Creek. They arrived in Marietta, Georgia, around midnight, and were able to secure rooms at the two hotels in town. Porters were hired to wake the men up before dawn. The next morning, Saturday, April 12th, a final briefing with all the men was held in Andrew's hotel room. The men were to board the northbound morning mail train and be ready to spring into action during the breakfast stop in Big Shanty, Georgia. Instead of having breakfast, we're bringing pain. (laughs) We're going to bring the rage. You want some chaos with the coffee? Because you're going to get some chaos with your coffee. Best part of waking up is some kick-ass in your cup. (laughs) 
<laughs> Burn it down! The plan was that Andrews and the two engineers, William Knight and Wilson Brown, along with fireman Alf Wilson, would take control of the engine while the rest of the passengers and crew had disembarked to eat. The rest of the men were to move into one of the head cars after they were uncoupled from the rear cars. Andrew's final orders were, quote, If anyone interferes, shoot him, but don't fire unless you have to, end quote. Scary. Yeah. The morning mail train from Atlanta arrived right on time in Marietta at first light. The locomotive of this train was known as the General, a powerful wood burner built in 1855. The train had three empty boxcars behind the tender, which holds the fuel for the locomotive. Okay. Then two passenger cars. And the boxcars were empty because when they headed up to their northernmost stop, they were going to be picking up supplies to bring back down to the south. Got it. The Raiders took seats in one of these coaches, but yet again, the group was too short. Martin Hawkins and John Porter, who had been staying at a different hotel, hadn't been woken up and arrived at the train depot in time to see it take off. Uh-oh. <laughs> That's not good. Yeah. Porter recalled, quote, I can't describe my feelings at that moment. There we were in the heart of the Confederacy, knowing that if we were suspected of anything wrong, we could expect death, end quote. Mm -hmm. Yeah, but that was terrifying. So now Andrews is down to 19 Raiders. Right on time, the train stopped in Big Shanty at 6.45 a.m., where the passengers and crew disembarked in a mad rush to try and grab breakfast at Lacey's Hotel. Amongst them was conductor William Allen Fuller, engineer Jeff Kane, and foreman Anthony Murphy. And those are the Confederate crewmen. Okay. So they, they kind of rushed out because they had no reason to think anything else would happen. Yeah. And they wanted breakfast, too. Yeah. I mean, it was a quarter to seven. They're probably hungry. They've probably been up since the crack of dawn. Mm -hmm. Well, and that job is not easy, like throwing the coal in. And, and this was a wood-burning one. It was a wood and yeah. steam engine. So, not easy. As soon as the crew were out of sight, Andrews, along with Knight, Brown, and Wilson, disembarked as well and removed the coupling pin behind the three empty boxcars. They double checked that the switches for the rail lines were set for where they wanted to go. And as the group climbed into the general, Andrews gave the signal to the rest of the raiders to board the third boxcar. Camp McDonald, a Confederate training camp, was located about 50 feet or about 80 kilometers away, and a few sentries at the camp witnessed the rather bizarre goings on. Oh, no. <laughs> Before their very confused eyes, at another signal from Andrews, Knight threw open the throttle and the general quickly bounded away from the station. At the hotel, Murphy happened to glance out the window just as the shorter train took off at high speeds from Big Shanty. He turned to the conductor and shouted, quote, someone is moving your engine, end quote. Oh, no. It's like stealing a really <laughs> clunky car. <laughs> car. The crew quickly ran to the platform and raised the alarm. The rebel sentries fired at the train before it disappeared around a curve. Murphy thought the thieves were deserters from the nearby training camp, which makes sense. Oh, yeah, that does make sense. Murphy later testified, quote, Fuller, Kane, and myself concluded in a few minutes that our duty was to proceed after them, end quote. 
the only problem was finding another locomotive in order to pursue the general. Big Shanty didn't have a telegraph station, and that's part of why they Andrews picked that as the spot where yeah. they would seal the train. Because they can't spread the word fast enough. So they couldn't send a warning ahead. Mm-hmm. Fuller, who was a 25-year-old conductor that had quickly risen in the ranks of the W&A, took the theft personally. And believing that the thieves were inexperienced, he and the rest of the crew pursued them on foot, thinking they'd find the abandoned train a few miles up ahead. Okay. <laughs> I mean, like, it's an, it's an okay assumption. Yeah. But, like, no. Keep in mind that at this time, trains typically didn't go faster than 15 to 20 miles per hour when they were at speed. That's really funny. <laughs> Unbeknownst to Fuller... The general was heading north at its regular speed, so they were going about 20 miles per hour. Okay. Andrews knew that on this single track line, he would have to keep to the timetable in order to pass the three southbound trains at each of the stations. So his plan was to stick with the timetable of the train so it wouldn't alert anybody that something was wrong. That makes sense. Yep. And also for safety reasons, because there was only the one line and you have Mm -hmm. trains coming from the north to the south and the south to the north. And you have to make sure that you're not going to run into one of those trains. Right. Unless you wanted to do like complete chaos. Yeah. Unless you wanted to die, basically. Kill civilians. Yeah. Using a crowbar that the Raiders had acquired from a track repair crew, they paused to take up rails in order to slow down any pursuit and also cut the wires at the first telegraph station they came across before heading on to Kingston, which was 30 miles, or about 48 kilometers, north of Big Shanty. Once they reached Kingston, they would encounter the first of the southbound trains from Chattanooga. Meanwhile, once Fuller reached the repair crew and learned that they had given a crowbar to the quote-unquote deserters, he quickly changed his mind on the deserter theory. Obviously, the thieves knew how to operate the train. So he took the repair crew's small hand car and went back. What? Yes. Oh, no. He's running on pure adrenaline right now, isn't he? Yeah, pretty much. So he (laughs) took their small hand car, which for people that don't know, that's the one where you have to like literally crank it. Crank. You have to go like up and down to like. It's like the seesaw kind of effect. Yes. To propel this hand car forward. Oh, man. So he went back to retrieve Murphy and Kane before continuing their pursuit. Oh, that's good. I'm glad he didn't do it alone. Yeah. Oh, my God. Can you imagine? He would, no, like, I'll get him. <laughs> <sighs> right. Try going 20 miles with that. Jesus. Jeez. It wasn't long before the three came upon the cut telegraph line. And that's when they knew that they were chasing a group of Yankees who had more serious plans than just deserting the army. Uh-oh. The three worked even harder to try and continue their pursuit before the car was hurled off the track where the rails had been lifted by Andrew's men. Oh, no. <laughs> These people are having the worst day ever. I know. <laughs> this is like... Something from Oh Brother, Where Art Thou? Seriously. A Coen Brothers film. <laughs> at, so at this point, Fuller is just beyond pissed off. Mm-hmm. So once they got the hand car back on the rails, they headed for the Etowah station, 
which connected to the main line via a branch track from the Cooper Ironworks. Okay. Because Fuller knew that Cooper's kept a small switching engine named the Yona, and it was his intention to use that to gain on the General and reclaim the locomotive. The Yona wasn't nearly as powerful of an engine as the General, but it was way better than a hand car. Yep. And it wasn't long before the three were able to get it running and head full throttle for Kingston, which was just 14 miles or about 23 kilometers away. As if this whole thing wasn't dramatic enough, it now started to rain. Awesome. (laughs) 45 minutes before Fuller and his crew reached Etowah, Andrews and the Raiders had reached the Kingston station and were waiting for the southbound freight that was due to arrive. As you can imagine, arriving at the station with a much smaller train than expected caused a bit of alarm. Yep. Andrews told the station agent that the commander of the field army in Corinth, Mississippi, General P.G.T. Beauregard, was desperately short of ammo after the battle at Shiloh, and the special train was carrying powder to the rebels. The moment the southbound train had passed through Kingston, he'd be on his way. So when, I didn't put this in the notes, but the station did this thing called siding. So obviously you can't have two cars on the same track. So once you got to the station, it would branch off. So there were rails on either side of the station. The southbound would go on one side of the rails. The northbound would go on the other. So that once Mm -hmm. one had come through, the other one could go. That makes sense. Unfortunately, once the freight arrived, it had a red flag on the last car, which indicated that an unscheduled train would be arriving shortly. Uh, (laughs) Andrews worried about the mission, and he was furious at the delay, demanding an explanation. The conductor of the freighter told him that High Command in Chattanooga was moving its stores and stock due to the Yankee threat in Huntsville, where Mitchell's division was located. Okay. Quick on his feet, Andrews demanded that the freight pull ahead on the siding so when the next train arrived, it wouldn't block his powder train so that he could basically just go as soon as the train came in. Okay. The delay seemed to stretch on forever, and the tension only increased tenfold when the unplanned train also had a red flag on its rearmost car. Uh, (laughs) Uh-oh. Because there was so much stock in Chattanooga, it required more than one train to transport it all, the conductor explained. Yeah. So as you can imagine, the 16 Raiders were now extremely nervous, like the ones that were hiding in the third boxcar. Yeah, I would be too. I'd be thinking I'm dead. Corporal Pittenger, who had been one of the men in the boxcar, had this to say of the experience, quote, a thousand conjectures will spring up at such times. To be shut up in the dark, while for all we knew the enemy might be concentrating an overwhelming force against us, was exceedingly trying. Yeah. Engineer Knight strolled over to the boxcar containing the men, leaned his back against the door, and said in a low voice, Boys, we've got to wait a while more for one more train that's behind time, and the local folks around are getting edgy. If you're called, be ready to jump out and fight, end quote. The extra second section finally came through, and once again, Andrews ordered it to pull through on the siding so it wouldn't block his train. Finally, after what I imagine was the longest 65 minutes of their lives, 
they were finally able to flip the siding switch and get back on the main line. So after after an oh, like over an hour. Yeah, after an hour of over an hour of sitting there and like freaking out and waiting to get going, they were finally able to go. That's awful. Not even 4 minutes later, Fuller and his crew arrived in Kingston aboard the Yona. No. <laughs> yeah. Oh man. Fuller had encountered the same frustrations as Andrews after getting stopped by the three southbound freights. Using his knowledge of the lines, Fuller detoured to a branch line in Rome, Georgia, that would allow him to bypass the gridlock, and the Rome train was also waiting to head north. After arriving in, in Rome, Fuller discovered that the Yankees had once again cut the telegraph lines after leaving Kingston. Mm-hmm. So he took command of the William R. Smith locomotive that was there and continued his pursuit. Andrews was pushing hard for Adairsville, which was 10 miles or about 16 kilometers north of Kingston, where he had two more scheduled southbound trains he had to wait for at the next couple stations. Okay. The Raiders felt secure in the knowledge that no alarm had been raised yet as they'd cut the telegraph lines. I can see that. So even though they're like behind schedule, obviously. They haven't been caught yet. Yep. And they know that the alarm hasn't been raised because they've been very like persistent on like stopping and cutting the telegraph lines to ensure Mm -hmm. nothing goes out. Andrew's cover story about getting supplies out to the rebel forces was so convincing that when they had to stop to take on more wood and water, the man on duty had no reason to doubt him. Regardless, Andrews had the general halt four miles outside of Adairsville in order to take up some more rails and load up the cross ties so they could use them as tinder to burn the bridges later on. Okay. As they were doing this, they happened to notice the smoke of a pursuing train and quickly loaded back up and resumed their trip to Adairsville. Mm -hmm. After encountering the torn up track, Fuller had to abandon the train to once again pursue the general on foot. Oh, no. This guy, I don't, how is he still going? I don't know. How? It has to be pure adrenaline and like rage. I'm sure he's just raging out. Like, mm-hmm. he knew that after the Yankees cleared Adairsville, they'd have a straight shot all the way to Chattanooga, and he could not let that happen. Again, it's still raining during all of this. Oh, man, this guy. This is like some kind of like Hollywood movie shit right here. <laughs> I know. Now, now we're we're leaving the Coen Brothers territory and going into like Quentin Tarantino territory. <laughs> <Right>. <laughs> like, like, I have nothing to lose. And suddenly he has a katana or something. <laughs> like a machine gun. There's something there. Meanwhile, Andrews pulled into the Adairsville station and only one freight was waiting. The conductor told Andrews that because of all the confusion in Chattanooga, the last southbound passenger train was running 30 minutes late. Andrews was adamant that they needed to leave at once, knowing they were being pursued. He's quoted as saying to the conductor, quote, I'll have to go out at once. If the Yankees attack Beauregard, he hasn't powder enough for a three-hour fight, end quote. Yeah. Isn't it Beauregard? Beauregard. Sure. <laughs> I, don't, I don't know. You can cut this out. Sorry. <laughs> no, it's probably Beauregard. You're right. Yeah, it's Beauregard. 
He was cautioned to run slowly and send a flagman ahead at every curve to avoid any sort of collision. However, the moment they were out of sight around the first curve, Andrews had Knight open the throttle wide. They had to reach the next station at Calhoun before the Chattanooga train or they would be blocked. Okay. Alf Wilson later commented that the general, quote, rocked and reeled like a drunken man while we tumbled from side to side like grains of popcorn in a hot frying pan, end quote. (laughs) What? (laughs) Okay. So, like, imagine the train just, like, teeter-tottering, like, back and forth on these train tracks going 20 miles per hour. (laughs) And smelling like popcorn. (laughs) I love that. They use popcorn with the analogy. I know. (laughs) They arrived at Calhoun by the skin of their teeth, just as the southbound passenger train was leaving the station. Andrews once again used his story about rushing to aid the rebel cause, and once again it worked, allowing them to proceed on. Meanwhile, Fuller and Murphy, who had managed to keep pace, encountered the southbound local freight that was pulled by the Texas locomotive a locomotive that was on par with the general for speed. Okay. They commandeered the train, uncoupled the freight cars, and then raced northbound in reverse. Oh, God. Okay. Because they couldn't turn it around. So he's like, screw it. We're just going backwards. That's commitment for sure. I feel like this guy doesn't care if he's going to die or not. He just wants to get this done. Yeah. Once they reached Calhoun, they raised the alarm with the local militia and were able to bypass the southbound passenger train to continue their pursuit. Five miles north of Calhoun near Risaka, Risaka, the raiders passed the trestle bridge that crossed the Ustanala River. They stopped hopefully for the last time to cut the telegraph line and take up a few rails to slow their pursuers. As they began to loose the rails, they heard the loud whistle of the pursuing Texas locomotive. Oh, no. Andrews gave the order to head back out before the job had been completed, so they weren't able to pull up any of the ties. Okay. And he ordered the last boxcar to be uncoupled whilst they were running at full speed. So basically to like, in the hopes of getting them off the rails or something, he's like letting go Mm -hmm. the last boxcar. Fuller kept pace, pushing the boxcar ahead of him as they continued ahead. Again, he's going backwards this whole time, and it's still raining. Yep, and he's just full of rage. <laughs> <laughs> he reminds me of, like, Yosemite Sam at this point. I can hear him, like, cursing in my yep. mind. His eyes are mm-hmm. all red. Yep. Just running on pure rage. Andrews ordered a second boxcar be loosed as they crossed the covered bridge over Ustanaula and as they continued to Risaka. Risaka? The W&A line began to encounter rough country. Fuller began to proceed more cautiously, afraid of ambushes and obstructions on the tracks. And he had good reason to be worried as the raiders tossed out every available cross tie they had in the remaining boxcar onto the tracks forcing Fuller to stop in order to not be derailed. Okay. At one point, Andrews had enough of a lead they were able to stop for wood and water, which they needed to keep going. Mm-hmm. They made one last attempt to permanently stop any sort of pursuit. They broke into teams, one cutting the telegraph lines, another piling obstructions onto the track while the engineers, Knight and Brown, oiled the locomotive. 
Okay. The rest of the team worked to lift a rail. Unfortunately, at that moment, the Texas came into view, and Andrews ordered everyone aboard before they could lift the rail. Oh, no, not again. Both locomotives reached speeds of a mile a minute as they crossed through Dalton, then the long tunnel under Chetogeta Mountain, before crossing the first of the long bridges that crossed Chickamauga Creek. What the hell is mm-hmm. with these names? Andrews ordered the men to set the last boxcar on fire in the hopes of uncoupling it as they crossed one of the bridges. But due to the unceasing rain, everything that could burn in the boxcar was soaked through. Yeah, I was worried about that. About a mile short of Graysville near the Georgia-Tennessee border, the general started to falter. The boiler water was low and the firewood was completely gone. Uh The general was going to die on the tracks. And even though it had gotten them almost 100 miles from Big Shanty, this was their final stop. Alf Wilson later testified, quote, Andrews now told us all that it was every man for himself, that we must scatter and do the best we could to escape to the federal lines, end quote. That's terrifying. Engineer Knight put the general locomotive into reverse before fleeing into the woods. But with a lack of steam, the engine didn't make it far before the Texas was able to pick it up. Fuller sent a messenger back to the nearest militia garrison in Ringgold, ordering the collection of the fugitives. Around 1 p.m., two miles north of Ringgold, the great locomotive chase had ended, but this seven-hour-long ordeal was far from over. Uh-oh. News spread quickly across northern Georgia, and Confederate cavalry patrols were soon guarding every crossroad and farmer's lane. Even the farmers got in on the action forming posses armed with shotguns, butcher knives, and tracking dogs, which they used to investigate fields and surrounding woodlands. Oh, no. Yeah. The farmers would capture any stranger they found in their path. Without anything to aid them, the bulk of Andrew's raiders wandered aimlessly before being stopped and questioned one after another. The story that Andrews had been spinning this whole time wouldn't work this far south. Yeah. Andrews himself posed as a Confederate officer and got within a dozen miles of Bridgeport, Alabama, along with two of his men before their bluff was called and they were captured. So he was so close to being free and making it when they got caught. That's so devastating. Privates Alf Wilson and Mark Wood claimed to be pursuing the Yankees and managed to make it to the Tennessee River near Chattanooga, where they stole a canoe and were able to float all the way down the river to Stevenson, Alabama. Their hope was to be able to join up with the Federals that were supposed to be located there. But the Federal forces had already left, and the pair soon found themselves arrested. Oh, no. Martin Hawkins and John Porter, both of whom had been left behind in Marietta, the ones that missed the train Mm because they weren't woken up in time. were picked up as they were trying to enlist in the 9th Georgia so they could defect as they got closer to the north. Okay. James Smith and Sam Llewellyn, who had joined the Confederate unit early on after they'd been left behind, were able Mm -hmm. to successfully desert and make it back safely behind Union lines. That's good. So they got one team. Mm -hmm. Since the 22 Raiders were dressed in civilian clothes deep in Confederate territory, the authorities were under great pressure to hang them all as spies. Mm. 
The group's only hope would be to maintain that they had been acting under, under union orders, which meant they would be subject to the rules of war for military prisoners. Andrews put little faith in this plan, especially for himself. As a known mm-hmm. smuggler of medicine into the South, Confederate high command would now realize that he was a double agent. Yep. In late April, Andrews was tried as a spy in the military court in Chattanooga and under the direction of Secretary of War Leroy P. Walker and President Jefferson Davis, he was found guilty as charged on May 31st, 1862, in order to be hanged. That's really sad. The following night, Andrews and Private John Woolham used a jackknife that one of the raiders had been able to conceal upon their capture and pried loose the bricks in their jail cell in Chattanooga in order to escape. Woolham was able to, to evade capture for a month, but Andrews found himself once again in Confederate custody just two days after his escape. And on June 7th, he was taken to a gallows block in Atlanta on Peachtree Street, where he was hanged. A dozen of the men were transferred to Knoxville, and a random selection of seven of those men were tried in military court for spying on Confederate military camps. All of them were found guilty, brought back to Atlanta, and sentenced to death. On June 18th, 1862, Privates Samuel Robertson, Perry G. Shadrach, Samuel Slavins, and George D. Wilson, along with Sergeant Major Marion A. Ross, Sergeant John Scott, and William Campbell, the civilian who joined their party, stood on the gallows. Private Wilson had the following to say before all of the men breathed their last. Quote, The seven of us have been condemned here as spies. We aren't that, as even those who convicted us knew. A lot of you are going to live to be sorry for what you're now doing. More than that, you're going to see the stars and stripes waving again over the ground the scaffold stands on, end quote. Mic drop. Yeah. Body drop. <laughs> for real. For real. Following the mass execution, the Confederate authorities weren't sure what to do with the remaining prisoners. For four long months, the remaining 14 survivors languished in captivity. In mid-October, they heard a rumor that they too would be tried. And on October 16th, they staged a massive breakout from the Atlanta prison where they were being held. Nice. Eight of the raiders were able to escape and found their way to federal forces located in central Tennessee, Corinth, Mississippi, Lebanon, Kentucky, and Apalachicola, Florida. William Knight, the engineer who piloted the general, went on to say of the experience, quote, We had spent 47 days and nights passing over some of the roughest country that ever laid out of doors, end quote. Yeah. On March 17, 1863, the six raiders that were still in Confederate custody were exchanged as prisoners of war and all of the survivors of the ordeal were awarded the Congressional Medal of Honor and were in fact the first to ever receive them. On March 25, 1863, the medals were presented by Secretary of War Edward M. Stanton to Jacob Parrott, who is recognized today as the first person to receive the honor, as well as William Bensiger, Robert Buffum, Elihu Mason, William Pittenger, and William Reddick. These six men were later welcomed into the White House by President Lincoln. Nice. Of the men, Corporal William Pittenger was wounded later in 1863 to the point that he was no longer able to serve. 
but the rest of the Raiders continued to fight for the Union until the conclusion of the war. Pittenger went on to publish an account of the chase called Daring and Suffering that was so well-received and popular that it was later reprinted in 1881 under the title Capturing a Locomotive, and again in 1889 as The Great Locomotive Chase. Nice. The remaining raiders who received their medals of honor later, some of them posthumously, included Wilson W. Brown, Daniel A. Dorsey, Martin J. Hawkins, William J. Knight, John R. Porter, Samuel Robertson, Marion A. Ross, John M. Scott, Samuel Slavins, James Smith, John A. Wilson, John Wollum, and Mark Wood. Of the Confederates, William Fuller and Anthony Murphy, who had reclaimed the general for the South, continued to serve until there were no longer trains to run. And as for General Ormsby Mitchell, after his failed attempt on Chattanooga, he took up a new post in North Carolina, where he later died in October of 1862 of yellow fever. Oh. Yeah. No good. The Commonwealth newspaper in Atlanta said of the event, it's, quote, either one of the most daring robberies or maddest pranks that has ever fallen under our notice, end quote. It's true. The Southern Confederacy of Atlanta paper described Andrew's raid as, quote, the deepest laid scheme and on the grandest scale that ever emanated from the brains of any number of Yankees combined, end quote. Okay. And as for the general, you can still see him, or what's left of him anyway, at the Southern Museum of Civil War and Locomotive History in Kennesaw, Georgia, which is what Big Shanty used to be named. Nice. Or what? used to be a big shanty and is now Kennesaw. And that is the story of the great locomotive chase. That's crazy. I just, in reading about this, I knew it probably wasn't con- successful because we've never heard of it. Right. But just hearing about how tense it was, that it was in the rain, mm-hmm. you know, they had had... Like everything that could go wrong did go wrong. Yeah. I mean, they were supposed to... Mm-hmm break up the rails they were supposed to light the bridges on fire you know like there were all these things they weren't Mm -hmm. able to do because of the rain you know because of things that were outside of their control it's pretty interesting Mm -hmm. i'm mike morford and i've been researching the zodiac case for years zodiac just the name it sounds sinister it inspires fear the fact that a serial killer would give himself this moniker is disturbing He would go on to taunt police by sending letters and codes to newspapers for years. And the attacks, they were something else altogether. If you were a young couple in a secluded area, you could easily be a target. And it wasn't just shootings on dark lovers' lanes. Zodiac would even attack with a knife in broad daylight while wearing an executioner-style hood. After a while, Zodiac changed tactics, and even lone cab drivers weren't safe. The Zodiac Killer terrorized the San Francisco Bay Area and then vanished, but he left a lot of clues behind along the way. Clues that we're going to examine closely on the new podcast, Zodiac Speaking. New episodes of Zodiac Speaking come out every other Saturday starting March 13, 2021. Subscribe today wherever you listen to podcasts so you don't miss a single episode. And this week's podcast plug is the Zodiac Speaks podcast by Abject Entertainment, hosted by Mike Morford and Richard Grinnell who spend each episode doing a deep dive on a different aspect of the Zodiac Killer and his victims. They do a fantastic job with their research, 
And it's really yeah. interesting learning about the nitty gritty of this unsolved series of murders. Yeah. And I found it extremely interesting considering I really only know the bare bones of the cases myself. Like I've never really mm-hmm. like done any sort of deep dive into the Zodiac. So if you are interested in learning a lot more about the Zodiac killer, I highly recommend you check out this podcast and we will have a link to it in the show notes. Awesome. And this week's question comes from the Backtracker History Show. And they have to say, if you had to invite three people that have been characters in your shows, whether it's murderers or victims, to a dinner party, who would they be and why? Oh, no. You can look up our podcast if you need to to see who we've covered in the past. I think I have to because I I don't remember names. I remember stories, but I don't remember names. Yeah. You want to go first? Yeah, I'm going to have to look too. I know Ann Lister would be one of them. Because she, Gentleman Jack. Mm-hmm. Yeah, she'd be fascinating. I think she'd be a to. fascinating person to talk to. I for sure want to have um, Xing Shi, the pirate queen. That's who I wanted. That's the first person that came to mind. Yeah, I'd want to have her for sure. Mm-hmm. Who else? And Juliana Tofana, the woman that had all that. Oh, yeah, the poisoner. Yeah. Just because she was prolific for so long. I think she'd have Mm -hmm. some interesting stories to share. Do you have any others that you'd want to invite? Mm. Oh, shoot. Nellie Bly would be a good one. Yep. Belle Starr, the cowgirl. Yep. She might be a good one. If I wanted to be really sick about it, we could invite some cannibals to dinner. (laughs) No, no thanks. (laughs) No, thank you. No, thanks. Mm -mm. Who else? It could be interesting to have Theodosia Burr come to dinner yeah that's true or okichi the tragic geisha so i'm sure she'd have some interesting stories about being a geisha yeah those are the ones i could think of yeah so for sure for me Ann lister shing shi and i think i'm gonna change my last one to nelly bly because i know she'd have some very interesting stories from her career as a investigative journalist yeah Yeah, that would be really interesting to see all the steps she took just to get where she was, too. Mm -hmm. Thank you for that question. That was a good question. Yeah, that was a a tough one, actually. Mm -hmm. I just don't know if I want to bring a bunch of murderers to the table. (laughs) Yeah, not sure about that. Considering most of the ones we've covered are poisoners. Yeah. I don't want to share anything with you as far as food or drink. You guys eat. I'm okay. (laughs) I'm going to sit here with my water that I brought myself. Nope. (laughs) Not even that. (laughs) Not even that. I'm just going to watch. Thanks. Mm -hmm. What's something good you'd like to share this week? Something good. My desk setup for work is almost done, which is very exciting. So we're kind of moving forward with our gradual gaining of furniture for the apartment. Nice. And the second bedroom is going to be where an, a really wonderful eight-year-old girl will sleep every now and then. And we got her a Snorlax bed. Nice. And I'm really, really excited to get it. And I'm trying to figure out now, like, what kind of pillows and blankets should you have for Snorlax? And I found this really awesome, like, rich-colored leaf fleece blanket. Mm. So it's like you're being covered by the forest floor. Nice. Kind of a thing. So 
we're going to have a lot of fun decorating this room. Cool. So I'm very excited about that. What about you? So yesterday, my Girl Scout troop, we did our, usually it would have been our year end outing, but because people were already so busy in June Mm -hmm. and summers are hard to try to plan anything, I decided to wait until the school year had started to do our sort of end of year slash year kickoff outing. Yeah. And we went to the Wildlife Science Center in Stacy. Nice. It's really cool. They have a lot of wolves there. That's the main animals that they keep at the Science Center. Okay. And a lot of them are ones that are rescues, like say they were they were either born there or they were brought there from other places, like they'd been trapped after they were like mm-hmm. attacking a bunch of livestock or something. Yeah. They have a variety of different wolf breeds, and we learned a lot about the different breeds of wolves. This place also has, they have bobcats, they have a couple mountain lions, which, fun fact, did you know that mountain lions meow like a house cat? Yeah. I did not know that, and one came out of this, they have like the really big cement tubes that they use for like bridges and stuff, and like, Mm -hmm. they have a bunch of those that have been donated for them to use in the habitats, and this one came out and kind of came up to the fence, and was just like, (laughs) made the cutest sound and i was just standing there like i'm sorry is this real what and then it did it again and i was like you were adorable but you would kill me so i'm gonna stay right here Mm -hmm. they had a couple lynx porcupines raccoons really fat raccoons some foxes a couple skunks that had been like Descented, like their glands had been removed. Yeah. The last kind of bigger animal they have there is they have some black bears at this place too. Oh, yeah. So mm-hmm. that was kind of cool. That makes sense. The guy that led the tour for us, because it was a private tour for our group after mm-hmm. hours, he was really great. The children had a lot of fun. If you're in Minnesota and want to go someplace like that, I highly recommend you go. I think the girls all want to go back at some point. They do birthday parties there and things like that. So it was a lot of fun. It was nice. So that's my something good. I got to see a bunch of wolves, which are awesome. And fun fact, foxes smell worse than skunks. Hmm. That was something else I learned. On that note, let's shut her down. Yep. You can find us online at yieldcrimepodcast.com. We're also on Twitter at Yield Crime Pod and on Instagram at Yield Crime Podcast. We are on YouTube where we post all of our episodes, including our Can You Crack the Cramp Word episodes, which are a fan favorite. Mm-hmm. If you'd like to send us something in the mail, you can do so by writing to our P.O. Box. Yield Crime Podcast, P.O. Box 341, Wyoming, Minnesota 55092. You can also email us at yieldcrimepodcast at gmail.com. I put out on Twitter recently a request for spooky stories and paranormal experiences for our Halloween episode. Mm-hmm. So if you have any stories you'd like to share, whether that's just writing them in an email or recording them and sending us the audio recording, please do so. We'd love to feature you on the episode. Mm-hmm. We love hearing spooky stories, so please send them our way. 
Yep, yep. If you'd like to leave us a five-star rating and review, it's a great way to support the show if you can't do so financially, or if you just want to be a nice person and leave us a five-star rating and review, that's also just great. You can leave us a review on Apple Podcasts, Podchaser, and Good Pods. And today's mm-hmm. review comes from Apple Podcasts from right. user Arist Ashley, I think is what it is. Okay. And they say, perfect, five stars. The chemistry the hosts have are amazing and the cases material is so good. Honestly, it's so good. I don't even have the words. Thank you. Thank you so much. If you would like to support us financially, you can do so on buying me a coffee to leave a one-time donation. You can also join our Patreon for as low as a dollar a month to get early ad-free access to all of our episodes, as well as some bonus perks at the $5, $10, and $15 tiers. There will be a sale at our Public merch store September 22nd mm-hmm. through the 27th, where you can get 35% off everything in the store. This will be the last yep. month that we have up our birthday designs before we switch it over to some spoopy Halloween-themed merch. Mm-hmm. Check it. And on that note, as always, I'm Lindsay. And I'm Madison. And we'll see you next time with another tale. As eldest crime.